All right, getting into Genesis. We were talking about the foundations, the foundations of our faith, the foundations of the whole Bible, really. Everything stems out of this book. Um, I did not realize, I, I did realize we were going to be talking about foundations. I did not realize how many controversial issues and topics are in the first few chapters. Um, every week I come across something, I'm, like, I'm actually very nervous about it. This is a big one. Um, uh, on Thursday night, uh, the wonderful Miss Margot, Matt's uh, wife, was in here, and I had told her about it, and she was nervous for me the entire time. I'm like, why? Did you think I was going like, to be preaching blasphemy? She's like, well, I mean, what if we didn't agree? And it's, um, it's, it's good. We have a good time. Um, but there's a lot of really big things here. There's a lot of things we tend to gloss by that are vitally important. There's a lot of things that have actually split churches that are within these first few chapters. So we want to handle them well. We want to handle them with reverence and care and with humility. Understand what is the word of God saying to us, not what do I want the word of God to say. So in Genesis 1, we talked about that God is in control, absolute control. There is no contest. There's no battle. There is no, is he going to win it? God is in absolute control. Number two, God has created an orderly world, an orderly place for us to be in, orderly design. And the third thing we talked about is that God sees you. He's in the big, he's in the small, he knows each and every one of us intimately. God sees you. In Genesis 2, we focused in, we talked about um, God setting up an ordered society. What is the establishment and for man to be in this world? What is the purpose of being here? And it is, there's five things that we caught out of that. The first one is that an orderly life takes balance. It cannot be all work, it cannot be all play, it has to be balanced. We saw that there needs to be an experience in your life, that God has designed this wonderful, amazing, beautiful world for you to experience with him. It's a journey with God, and that takes time. Most, a lot of times we want it now. We want to seize it now, and that's not the God, way God does things. He brings you through things. He brings you along. It's an experience. We talked about that um, our society needs to be built up around orderly worship and correct worship, worship of God, not worship of man, not worship of things, not worship of ideals, worship of God. He is our God and we are his people. And that there needs to be work, good work, fulfilling work, godly work in our lives. Work is meant to be a blessing. Work keeps your hands busy so your hands don't get into trouble. Work is a good part of life. And he set the balance of the family and the, his design for the family, his desire for the family, for an ordered society. And we're going to hone in a little bit more on people today with Genesis 3. We're going to be talking about what sets you apart. Because God has made a big ordered universe and he's honing down to people. So what's unique about people? What does it mean to be in the image of God? What is the call of God on each and every one of our lives? There's an individual call for you, but there's a call for all people to be an image of God. This is the way we were made. What does that look like? And a big part of it is what we're going to talk about in Genesis 3. We've got a lot of really unfortunate things that happen in Genesis 3. And a big emphasis of this is on self-control. And I had a big circle around this and a word written under this, and I don't know why I didn't say it on Thursday night, but just as much in self-control, this chapter is about faithfulness, on whether or not you will be faithful to the Lord. No matter what, how big the command or how small the command, the fact that the God spoke to you, will you be faithful to God? So let's 
dive into what this is talking about. How do we see this in this chapter? Genesis 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So we've got an interesting thing right out the gate. Verse 1, we should be peaked. We should go, this is weird. The snake just talked. <laughs> That's not normal. It should already pique our interest that this is something more than perhaps what it might seem on its face. So the first thing, the serpent described, described as crafty. That word is arum. The adjective version of that word means cunning or clever, usually um, good at deceiving. But there's a noun version of this word as well. It's actually very commonly used for people. They are arum. Now, that is described as someone who is sensible, someone who is shrewd, someone who makes good decisions, actually. It's usually cast in a very positive light. So we're introduced to this serpent, who has this very positive attribute, but it can go either way. So what is going to come from this? And the first thing he says is, did God actually say? And this is a very peculiar beast. He's talking to us. And so there's two things that are going on here simultaneously, and it's assumed that we understand already. Kind of like when we look back at Genesis 1. It talked about the sun and the moon, but it never said the sun and the moon. Why? It's assuming you know some things already, some things that we might not because we don't speak Hebrew. Most of us, at least, maybe some of you in here do. Good on you. But it's assuming you know some things that are there. And so that's my job is to bring this context to when we don't quite understand fully. Now, there's a concept here that the snake is the devil. But throughout this entire chapter, it never says the snake is the devil. So how do we get there? And we will get there. We're not getting there quite yet, though. I'm getting ahead of myself. But there's two things going on. One, the snake is a beast. And that's actually important to a big part of this chapter. It is a beast. It repeats that it is a beast. But it's talking to you. So it's a little bit more than just a beast. It's a very clever beast. It's a very interesting and peculiar beast. It can speak. It can communicate. It's intelligent. But it's still just a beast. It can relate to you on an emotional level, but it's still just a beast. It's upright. It's probably talking to her face to face. Part of the curse that we're going to see is that this beast is going to crawl on its belly, meaning it wasn't in that state before. There's actually some interesting arguments that beforehand this thing had legs. I don't know how much I buy that, but we do know it probably was speaking her face to face, whether it's a tree dweller or whether it's just has some sort of strength that it could be standing on its back, but it's speaking directly to him. It feels very much like it has all the attributes that we define as being human. But it's not a human. It's a beast. So what's the separation here? What's the difference? What's the point that's being trying to be driven home? What is it trying to tempt her with? Because it's talking to Eve here. And is trying to tempt her with something, something very specific. And a lot of us have attributed it's, well, it's just pride. It's just being like God. But is it just that? We're going to read on that when she looks at it, most about what she's tempted with is her own desire. 
And it's, will you be faithful here? Will you exercise self-control when tempted? Something we interesting we know, something we, see, we perceive through nature is no matter how intelligent, how smart, how much you train the beast, there are certain things that it cannot exercise self-control over. Any of you that have ever owned a dog that was not spayed or neutered, <laughs> when the season comes around, it doesn't matter how well-trained that dog is, you better lock it up. You're going to have little baby dogs. It cannot exercise self-control in that. It just over, that instinct overwhelms itself. It's got the scrap of food on the ground, doesn't matter how well-trained. What you have that the beast does not is self-control. And that self-control will be the decision between will you be faithful in the moment in which you're tempted? This is the crux. You are a person. You are not a beast, no matter how much culture would like to say you are. You open that biology textbook. It doesn't say there are people and then animals. It says you're all animals. You're just the top of the animal kingdom. You're just a beast. You're a very smart beast, is the claim culture would like to make. But you can't help what you are. You're full of instincts and desires, and why should you deny yourself? That's what we're going to talk about today. And so the beast says, the serpent says, the Nahash, as Martha pointed out. That's going to be important later on. The Nahash. Did God actually say? And it's interesting. We don't, we don't start with a lie. Because he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And God didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. No, he talked about something specific. He didn't say you can't have any of them. He said you can't have one. So God, the serpent starts out with a deceitful statement. He doesn't start out with a lie. He's a clever beast. But he's casting doubt, beginning to twist, beginning to prime, beginning to set you up to wander, to fail, to stumble. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now we have the first issue, because that's also not what God said. God said, don't eat it. He never said anything about touching it. Now it's wise not to touch it when you have something you're not supposed to do. You shouldn't play with that. You shouldn't draw close. You shouldn't handle. You shouldn't go, well, I mean, it's just, it's so nice, but, but no. Well, maybe, I mean, I couldn't. No, don't do that. That's not wise. But it's not specifically what God said. God didn't say don't handle it. God didn't say don't touch it. God said don't eat it. So there's already a twisting that's gone on here. The seed of doubt. And so something either between Adam or between Eve has happened here some miscommunication or some misunderstanding. Either Adam didn't communicate correctly and he added to the word of God because God said, don't eat it. And Adam could have communicated to Eve because it doesn't tell us that God spoke to Eve. 
God will eventually speak to you, but it hasn't recorded that yet for us. He spoke to Adam. He entrusted this rule to Adam, and he expected Adam to lead, to convey his message. And so, did Adam add to the word of God? Already casting doubt, already skewing what God has said. Or did Eve add to the word of God? Maybe Adam did say it correctly, and then Eve is just added to it because it seems, well, it seems wise that if we're not supposed to eat it, then we probably shouldn't touch it. Either way, it's being twisted, and now we can be arguing about it. Now things can get off track, and which is why we constantly say it's the word of God plus nothing minus nothing, just the word of God. The word of God is enough. The name of the, one of the names of the Lord we see is El Shaddai. El Shaddai is usually translated as God Almighty. But if you look at those words, the letterings for Shaddai, it actually makes words. It says, the God who said enough. The God that knew when it was done. The God that knew exactly what needs to be said. That's the God we imitate, the God that knows what's enough. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So some interesting things going on here. You will surely not die. Here's the lie. Here's the seed. This is the move. What will you do? Will you be faithful? Will you exercise self-control? Or will you be deceived? And will you work through the process of deceiving herself? Because it doesn't end with a snake. It tells us the insights of Eve's thought process here. She begins to convince herself. You know, it does look good. And Adam said, we're made in the image of God. Don't we want to be like God? And won't eating that make us more like God? Maybe the snake's right. I mean, that, it just looks good. It probably tastes good. It smells good. I've hand, I haven't handled it yet, but I mean, mm, I do want to be wise. I do want to know. Maybe the snake's right. And she ate of it. James 1, 12 through 15 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is what's happened, or will happen in a few lines. But within this particular spot is actually a portion that's referenced later on in scripture that is a huge argument within the church. 
comes from 1 Timothy 2. We're going to break that down and see what God really did say, not what do we want it to say, because I really believe that's what's happened here quite a bit, even, even more so in the last 50 years. So it begins, so for some context, this is a letter of Paul to Timothy. It's 1 Timothy. And he's saying, I wish that you for pray for everybody so that you can live quiet and peaceable lives. That's what Paul's talking about up to this point. And then he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We don't say that unless that's not happening. Meaning the men are not lifting their hands and praying, and they are spending their time being angry at one another and quarreling. Paul talks about this a lot in his letters, about this dissension, about don't get caught up in empty arguments about genealogies and myths and these things that amount to nothing. Set aside malice, set aside wrath, set aside anger. That's not what you're supposed to be focused on. Focus on what you're supposed to be doing. You're called to be priests of the God Most High. It's a calling out of the men here. It's saying, hey, quit arguing, boys. You got a job to do. You're getting caught up in the the infighting instead of doing it. And then he addresses the women. He says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly attire but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Meaning at that time, and perhaps even now for some, stop focusing on how you look. That is not how you are defined. You are a child of God. You are defined by your good works. You're defined by your following after the Lord, partnering with your man who's also not doing what he's doing. Come on, people. (laughs) Stop worrying about the things that don't matter. Start worrying about the things that do. God's calling back his people the issues that they were facing in that time, the issues that were causing them to be off track and not being successful in what God has called them to. He continues, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. That one has been a big deal. (laughs) I'm going to translate and give some information. At this time, women were not permitted to attend Torah school with the boys. Meaning, they didn't get to go to school as we understand it. They did not go and learn when their brothers did. This is the first time they've been allowed into this context of learning, and they're excited. When you're excited about learning something, you probably have a lot of questions. And at the basic sense, what this is saying is, please let the preacher speak. Let him get through the whole message. Right now, when we, we're sitting right now, people aren't shouting out. People aren't asking questions. You might have some questions already, but you're holding them till the end. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying right there. Listen quietly. We know you're excited, but we've got to have order. And then we're going to get to the next line, which has become an even bigger deal than that one. <laughs> I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now that remain quiet and that word learn quietly, they're the same. It's that same idea. 
take part in learning. And he's going to explain this because this one has been really hard for people, especially in recent culture. This has been difficult to walk through. We're going to walk through what it's saying and why it's saying it. Paul explains, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. What does that mean? What is that talking about? What is that to be understood? They would have all understood at the time the concept of primogeniture. This is the right of the firstborn male to receive a double inheritance. Why is that important here? Why is that significant? Because it wasn't just because now he's special and he gets more. No, it's because when dad dies, he is now responsible for the entire family. He is now quite literally the head of that whole family. And he was responsible for taking care of anybody that was still in the home. So he was given a double portion so he could do that. He was responsible for taking care of everyone, for stepping up into his role and his calling as the head of that house. And that was Adam's role and Adam's calling to step up and be the head of that house. Adam didn't do that. We're going to continue. And Adam was not deceived. I bet the majority of you, the first time you read that, thought that that was a nice comment towards men, but it is not. Adam wasn't deceived. Read the rest of the chapter. Adam's about to sin, but he wasn't deceived. Adam knew full well what he was doing. He sinned with his eyes wide open. It's called dealing with the Lord with a heavy hand. Adam knew what he was doing. We'll continue. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Translating it, she wouldn't have transgressed if she wasn't deceived. She only sinned because the snake tricked her. Adam knew what he was doing. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. All of this, all this section is talking about that role of overseer, of head of the house. We are referred to as the household of faith. And there's one, not one, we have five. We always do this in a unity. There are the elders of the church, the ones that rule over it, the ones that lead, the ones that are called to that role and that responsibility are the men. Why? Because God set it up that way. There's nothing other than that. It is not because women are less intelligent. I think you can look around and know that that's not true. <laughs> it's not because women are less capable. It's not that they can't. It's because God said, I told him to do it. Amen. And he didn't do it. Amen. And we're not going to perpetuate that. No. We're not going to continue allowing that. Because the problem became because he didn't do what he was told to do. He didn't fulfill his call. I never expected Eve to carry that burden. That wasn't her burden to bear, and she shouldn't have had to. She shouldn't have been put in that place. Adam didn't do his job. We're going to call the men to do what God has called them to do. Yeah. Not to rule with a heavy hand, not to rule tyrannically, but to rule in the loving care and admission of the Lord. 
That's what this is talking about. When we read out of Numbers 15, 28 through 31, it should be very sobering of what's happened here. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord because the person who makes, for the person who makes a mistake. It's an unintentional sin. It's really the expectation of all the laws throughout the law for Israel, is that this was something unintentional. They didn't mean to do it. They stumbled. They made a mistake. Eve made a mistake. To make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. And this is what happens here. Adam is utterly cut off and he represents his family so they go with him. Adam didn't do his job. Adam didn't fulfill his calling. Adam, on the best case scenario, best case scenario, he wasn't right there when the snake was talking to Eve. He was somewhere tending a different part of the garden. Eve and the snake are having a conversation. She eats the fruit, she takes it to him, and she hands him the fruit and says, here, take. This is the best case scenario. But Steve, if you can put up the picture of the tree for a moment. God says to you, that tree, don't eat from it. He wouldn't forget that. That's a unique thing that God said over anything else. That one, how, even in the best case scenario, do you not recognize the fruit that's handed to you? How do you not go, what did you do? Eve, we're not supposed to eat this. How does he not do that in that moment? It doesn't account him saying anything. It just goes, hmm, all right. And he has a bite. Worst case scenario, he's right there and he says nothing. I, mean, I, I don't know what was going through his head, but I could potentially imagine. I wonder how this is going to go. You know, I've always wanted to try that tree. God said we would die. Maybe I'll just let her eat it first. See what happens. <laughs> oh, she didn't die right away. Cool. I bet I could get to the tree of life before anything bad happens. This is Adam. This is what he did. He didn't advocate for his wife. He didn't say, Eve, no, oh no, we got to go talk to God. Maybe we can sort this out. No, he dove right in. I've always wanted to try it, and you're not dead, so cool. <laughs> and he ate. He rebelled against the word of the Lord. He knew what God said. He knew he wasn't supposed to eat it. And he didn't listen to God. 
Hosea 6, 5 through 7 says, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithless with me. Will we be faithful to the Lord? Will we exercise self-control? And every single one of us follows after Adam. Every single one of us has gotten to the point in our life where you see the sin. You haven't sinned yet, but you're thinking about it. And you're looking at it. And whether it's when you were a little kid and you knew you weren't supposed to take that candy, but you wanted it, and what mom and dad don't know is what mom and dad don't know. I'm going to have some. Whether it's when you're at work and, you know, I'm going to take this stapler because I need it. They don't pay me well enough, and I deserve it. And we convince ourselves, that's still stealing. When you take the pen, or you take the roll of toilet paper, whatever it is you take from your work, <laughs> it's still stealing. I've been guilty of doing that. Didn't make it any less stealing, no matter how much you rationalized it. I'm just gonna lie. Because if I tell the truth about this, it's going to be a big issue. But if I say nothing, then it'll just go on by. I'm just going to lie. Nope, wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I'll just lie. Because that'll be easier than dealing with the consequences of what I've done. I'm really angry at what they did. And I'm going to hurt them because I can. And it'll make me feel better right now. And they can't do anything about it. We've all been at that precipice. You know it's wrong, but you decide to do it anyways because you can. Faithfulness and self-control. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. In a different passage, it says, All fall short of the glory of God. And I want you to notice here want you, something very specific. It does not say sin came into the world through two people. Sin came through the world through one man. One man who sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. And he hid himself. And I, and I hid myself. And he, he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten 
of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And every time I'd read that before, I thought, this is God angry. But after becoming a father and dealing with the same situation <laughs> many, many times, I realized it's not anger he's feeling in this moment. Did you, did you do the one thing I said not to do? You knew better. Why did you do that? God is never described as being quick to anger. He is slow to anger, and he is faithful to his word. He is a good, good father. And this is an opportunity right here. It's an opportunity that's been presented for them to come clean about what's happened. But what did they do? The man said, the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. I mean, really, Lord, I mean, who's to blame? Who made all this? Who made me the way I am? How can I help but be anything other than what I am? And you gave me her. How could this possibly be my fault? Then he, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what do we see? What has happened? Do we see repentance? No. Do we see remorse? We see any form of shame or Lord, I was wrong. We see a shifting of blame. It's somehow not my fault. It's a mockery of confession. We see no remorse. We see no repentance. And there's this accusation. You gave me. You've set me up to fail. You put the tree right there and you made it look so good. How could I not? How could this be my fault? Ezekiel 18, 25 through 32 says, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness, he has committed and does what is just and right. He shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? 
for I have no pleasure in death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This was written long before Jesus walked on this earth as a man, long before he died on the cross for every one of your sins, because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The message is the same. Turn from your ways so that you may live. God does not enjoy the death of anyone, but he wants everyone to live. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to stop and pause a moment. This is where we get this... um, We're going to talk about the fact that it's not just a beast. This is also the devil. This is also a spiritual being, the deceiver of the whole world. Out of Revelation 12, 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, you might ask, and I know culturally we've just kind of accepted this, but why? Why is this the devil? It doesn't ever say in this passage his name. But I want to say for a moment, this is also very similar to when we talked about the sun of the moon. The devil isn't his name. The Satan isn't his name. Lucifer isn't his name. Those are all titles that are given. Lucifer is actually Latin. It means light bringer. It's the name we give to Venus when they still thought it was a star. It's called the, la- it's the last light of the morning the star of the dawn. Oh, morning star, how have you fallen? The passage out of Isaiah, we often reference, it's referring to what the devil did, wanting to set his throne on high above the amount of assembly so that he would be like God. It's not actually his name. The devil is Greek for diabolos. It means the slanderer. The Satan is Hebrew for the one who stands opposed. They're just titles he's been given. He's not important enough for a name in this story. It's not his name, but we recognize his deeds and who he is. We recognize that he's the deceiver of the world, the father of all lies, the murderer from the beginning. And he's a talking snake. This isn't a regular snake. This is the Nahash. Why is that so important? Well, when we look at other passages throughout Scripture, when we see other strange snakes and strange beings, they allude to this. We look at Numbers 21, 6 through 8, when the serpents are sent into the camp of Israel because they're they're complaining about God and he's punishing them, and then Moses makes the bronze serpent and sets it up. We're even vaguely familiar with this story. Well, in that story, it says he sent fiery serpents. Anyone know what a fiery serpent is? never seen a fiery serpent myself. But that word fiery is saraf, the saraf nahash. Saraf is used another place in scripture, and it's translated as the seraphim, the, some of the angels, some of the divine beings of God. So when we see a talking snake, we think divine being. It's also a beast. It's two things that are being communicated to us here. 
This is more than just a snake. And it says, your offspring and her offspring will have enmity. Now we think, but the angels don't have children. That's, this is where the analogy comes in. When we read through 1 John 3 through 8, it talks about the sons of the devil are the ones that do his work, just as the sons of God are the ones that carry out the works of God. And he's going to bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now that word bruise can also mean crush. We have to think head, heel, what's happening here? Crushing, defeating. You're going to hurt him, but he will defeat you. He will defeat your works. This is the first illusion. This is the promise of redemption to come for mankind, that the devil's works will not stand, but God's works will. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The family is now cursed. Where be fruitful and multiply was a blessing, now it's going to bring pain. Where you and your husband were going to come together and become one flesh, now there will be dissension. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The earth is cursed. Now it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles that have no other use than pain. Work is cursed. You're going to sweat. It's going to be difficult where it was just joy before. And all of mankind is cursed. You will return to dust. You will not live forever. Because you have listened to a different voice than God's. You were not faithful. The man called his wife's name Eve. The word Eve means life because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is, throughout all of this, still God's grace. I'm sending you out in this world, but I still love you and I still want you to survive. So I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give to you what you still need. Not what you want, what you need. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Out of the New American Commentary, it says on this portion, now the conversation deliberates upon the cutting off of that creation from the source of rejuvenating life. We're now talking about Adam and Eve being cast out. In this latter case, the mood of the divine contemplation, God talking to himself, what is the mood going on here? Is that not one of fear of usurpation, but rather of sympathy? for the misery that first couple must endure and an assurance that their pitiful state is not consigned for eternity, that they will not have to live through this forever. Their time will be allotted and they will pass away. 
And then when man is redeemed, he will raise them up again. Now, each and every one of us has to walk out knowing good and evil. Each and every one of us have to decide, will we be faithful? Will we exercise self-control? Out of Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? Would you stand with us? Thank you, Joe. A lot to chew on there. So imagine yourself preparing to lead the people into communion at this point. What would you say? Uh, who can tell me what the tree was? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't remember when I discovered it wasn't the tree of good and evil, but it was the knowledge of good and evil. I have a six-week, seven-week-old granddaughter right now. And it, it strikes me that there's an innocence to her, and part of that innocence, probably all of it really, no knowledge of good and evil yet. Just no understanding of that. And I think about us and this curse and what it's brought to us, and it's something we were never meant to have. We're created in God's image, right? But without that knowledge of good and evil, so what are we supposed to be like? And as we approach communion, I would, I would challenge you to think about Mark 10, verse 14. Part of it says, he said to them, this is Jesus, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What does 15 say? Truly, I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. As we approach the communion table this morning, it's not just a cracker and juice. This is representative of what Christ did for us. This is his body. The juice is his blood. In our adulthood, we should not approach communion lightly. There's a way that it, we're told that communion is not to be taken, and that's to be taken with kind of an impure heart when you have unconfessed sin, things in your life that you know where you did wrong, the knowledge of good and evil. We're faced with that every time we come to communion. So I would, I would challenge you, number one, to think through that before you come up. Number two, once you decide that it's time, come up as a child come up receiving something that your father has to bless you with remembering what he's done for us <laughs> there's also boxes up here for your giving um, God loves a cheerful giver um, you should give without compulsion without guilt without anything like that so thank you for doing that let's take communion together <laughs>